Hello and welcome to Scanner Today's Let's Talk AI podcast, where you can hear from AI researchers about what's actually going on with AI and what are just clickbait headlines. This is our latest Last Week in AI episode in which you get a quick digest of last week's AI news, as well as a bit of discussion between two AI researchers as to what we think about this news. To start things off, we'll hand it off to Daniel Bashir to summarize what happened in AI last week. We'll be back in just a few minutes to dive deeper into these stories and give our takes. Hello, this is Daniel Bashir here with our weekly news summary. This week, we'll look at AI and vaccines, facial recognition, and two stories about ethical concerns. While the United States encounters difficulty in distributing COVID-19 vaccines, Atlanta-based entrepreneur Benjamin Warlick has launched the Georgia Vax app, a text notification platform to streamline vaccine appointment information. As Hypopotamus reports, the notification service is built on top of the Warlick AI bot and is used for multiple counties organizing information about vaccine rollouts from different government websites. Warlick himself, who studied engineering before going to law school, had already worked on streamlining information from government websites to help people find information surrounding city permitting. He then realized that the same technology could help people get information about vaccine appointments. Hopefully we'll have an effective enough distribution system in the future that efforts like Warlick's aren't necessary, but it's comforting to know that people like him are here to help. Not long ago, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo signed a bill restricting the use of facial recognition in New York schools, but that doesn't stop facial recognition from being used elsewhere. As Fast Company reports, Amnesty International is producing a map of all the places in New York City where surveillance cameras are using facial recognition. The crowdsourced effort enlists volunteers to use their smartphones to identify, photograph, and locate these surveillance cameras. The map is part of a campaign called Ban the Scan that is meant to educate people around the world about the civil rights dangers of facial recognition, which has been shown to be less accurate for certain demographic groups than for others in practice. Amnesty International has already launched a website allowing citizens to comment on the NYPD's use of facial recognition and aims to launch similar crowdsourced mapping projects in New Delhi, the West Bank, and Mongolia. We've seen plenty of chatbots gone wrong in the news recently, but a recent Microsoft patent introduces a new, troubling flavor of the technology. According to Forbes, this patent would allow the tech giant to construct an AI-assisted chatbot using personal data of the deceased, such as images and social media posts. While Microsoft doesn't explicitly claim the chatbot will be used to digitally resurrect the dead, it does say the specific person may correspond to a past or present entity, such as a friend or a relative. General Manager of AI Programs at Microsoft, Tim O'Brien, responded to concerns on Twitter, saying he's unaware of any plans to actually build such a chatbot. It remains to be seen if those plans will ever manifest. While Microsoft may have patented resurrecting the dead, South Korea has actually done it. According to CNN, national broadcaster SBS plans to use AI to bring the voice of superstar Kim Kwang-suk back to life on a new program. This isn't the first time AI has been used to revive a famous singer in the country, and while AI performances have excited fans, they've also raised concerns about the ethics and legality 
of resurrecting voices of the deceased. SBS producer Nam Song Moon came up with the idea for an AI versus human singing competition after watching the famous challenge match between DeepMind's AlphaGo and Lisa Doll in 2019, which created immense interest in the technology throughout Korea. While South Korea is considered to be at the forefront of AI, there are calls for more regulation, such as a recent petition calling for tougher punishments for the creators of deepfake videos. In the case of the SBS show, the station paid a fee to Kim Kwang-suk's family for using his voice in the show. But as AI becomes an increasingly important force in its economy and society, South Korea will have to grapple with the same ethical and legal issues the rest of the world faces as we consider the role of AI in our lives. That's all for this week's News Roundup. Stay tuned for a more in-depth discussion of recent events. Thanks, Daniel, and welcome back, listeners. Now that you've had the summary of last week's news, feel free to stick around for a more laid-back discussion about this news by two AI researchers. That includes me, Andrei Krenikov, a third-year PhD student at the Stanford Vision and Learning Lab. I focus mostly on learning algorithms for robotic manipulation in my research. And with me is my co-host... I'm Sharon, a fourth-year PhD student in the machine learning group working with Andrew Ng. I do research on generative models, improving generalization of neural networks, and applying machine learning to tackling the climate crisis, as well as, well as to medicine. And uh, I think this episode should be pretty fun. Uh, last week, we had mostly downer stories, a lot of erroneous and problematic uses of AI. Whereas this week, uh, it looks like we'll have more sort of stories to counter that, how to counter bad uses of AI. Starting with our first story, uh, these crowdsourced maps will show exactly where surveillance cameras are watching from fastcompany.com. So the story is all about how Amnesty International is allowing people to crowdsource uh, locations where surveillance cameras are scanning residents' faces. And I found this pretty interesting. I was definitely not aware of how sprawling the uh, network of uh, surveillance is in New York. They have, this article says, 18,000 CCTV cameras. And in 2011, the NYPD launched its new facial identification section, which could search for matches among images in the DAS database of CCTV and other surveillance footage. So um, yeah, it, it's uh, pretty noteworthy to see just how capable it seems uh, the police forces in New York of uh, doing facial recognition. Um, yeah, what was your take or takeaway from this, Sharon? This is a fun article because actually the privacy class I took in undergrad at Harvard, uh, the first assignment I remember very, very well, and it was to count the number of security cameras in Harvard Square. And it was really funny. And the team that got, uh, I think like that got the right number would win, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and in the end, the professor actually said, oh, maybe I'm spoiling this for anyone who hasn't taken the class, but um, the professor said, oh, I actually don't know how many. I, I, do, I make this assignment to find out how many there are. <laughs> and so he's actually very surprised. And he's like, the, the number goes up every year. 
So it's really funny. And we had this like massive Google Drive of the security cameras too. Uh, but it, it was, it was just really funny and, um, and fun and makes you realize how many there are and how sprawling they are and how, what they look like. And it's just, it's very illuminating to have to do an assignment in, in an activity like that. And I guess one of the few computer science courses that ask you to do something towards exercising and not just sitting there in front of a screen. Uh, so so yeah, it, there are a lot of security cameras and that 18,000 is quite a few. <laughs> yeah, and um, it's interesting that Amnesty International is getting into the game of countering surveillance. It seems like a lot of nonprofits or public interest groups are now working in a position to facial recognition, which we've discussed before our efforts as well. Uh, here it also says that uh, later they plan to let citizens generate Freedom of Information Act requests to discover where and how facial recognition systems are being used in their neighborhood. So, um, yeah, working towards greater transparency. And that's something we've seen over and over that maybe facial recognition isn't a bad idea, but at the same time, transparency about it and sort of being clear as to the scope and the uh, way it's being used is also something that should be done at the same time. So nice to see this effort for sure. So now moving from security cameras to more weaponry, our second article from Reuters uh, is titled, The U.S. Commission Cites a Mortal Imperative to Explore AI Weapons basically stating and encouraging the use of AI weapons, uh, that the government should be developing these weapons, and that's because they make uh, potentially fewer mistakes than humans do in battle, and this will actually lead to reduced casualties or, or skirmishes uh, caused by target misidentification, for example. Obviously, very controversial uh, on the front of human rights uh, versus warfare uh, and definitely uh, brings to light the idea of quote unquote killer robots. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, here? it's interesting to see the U.S. Um, having this draft report for Congress. So this is a panel that was government appointed to look into this. And the conclusion to not agree to ban the use or development of autonomous weapons uh, is, I guess, an interesting direction. Uh, and, and this notion that there's a moral imperative to explore weapons because they could be more uh, accurate, make fewer mistakes, lead to fewer, fewer casualties. Um, that's certainly a take that some people, some ethicists have explored in this direction. But then again, there is... Uh, this campaign to ban killer robots as a whole organization that makes this their core issue. And they say that 30 countries, including Brazil and Pakistan, support a ban of AI weapons internationally. And then, um, yeah, it seems uh, there is kind of a controversial <laughs> uh problem here. Uh, certainly, there are cases for both that you could say that AI-enabled weapons will just lead to uh, more 
problematic uh, cases of warfare where you might be deploying more of these sorts of weapons than you would if you had human soldiers. Uh, usually it might make uh, combat more frequent if both sides have AI weapons. So overall, I tend to side with the idea that AI weaponry, AI-powered weaponry is pretty dangerous and it would be ideal if there was a pact to not develop these systems because inevitably you will run into problems of maybe the systems eventually can be perfected, but at first it seems very doubtful that they won't have problems um, that uh, will be bad. Then again, uh, there are cases where robots can be deployed in the field of soldiers to help in other ways of helping to transport you know, heavy loads. We've seen that with Boston Dynamics, uh, helping to dispose with um, bombs and things like that. So um, certainly exploring AI and robots for military use cases is something that should be done, but I'm not as sure about the use of AI for weapons. Uh, do you have any take on this idea of AI-enabled weapons, Sharon? Yeah, it's definitely a problem because the moment we bring this to light, a lot of people, a lot of people who have moral feelings or feel ethical in any way, I don't know, uh, will be compelled to not work on AI. You know, and that definitely creates a self-selecting crew that does. And I think it definitely is problematic. Um, as Joseph Redman, you know, PJ Reddy of YOLO fame, uh, has decided to move away from the field because he sees his work being used for nefarious purposes, such as this one. And it does make me think, okay, well, AI can be more biased, AI can be less biased, and it really depends on who is wielding it. And so... In this case, I would very much ask whether the people wielding it, because it will amplify human biases, whether the people wielding it will be less or more biased, right? And I think that is where the problem really lies and that people don't have as much trust in the, def in, uh, the Department of Defense or whatever, that, er, that they will be using it for good reasons and that it will actually reduce you know, casualty loss. Um, I'm, yeah, it's not, I'm not confident that will happen. And at the same time, there's the challenge of, well, and the argument of, well, this is an anti-fragile technology and we need to test it out. It needs to break before it can get better. Uh, and that's a really dangerous argument to get into as well, which I've also heard for, you know, self-driving cars, we need to have casualties before we learn that those samples are not good. And that's just really unfortunate. Um, yeah, for sure. Um, it's interesting here that um, the commission said that there's a more imperative to explore these weapons. As you said, it matters a lot how you use them. So perhaps a middle ground could be uh, having a treaty to regulate the use and development of autonomous weapons. But at the same time, you know, uh, placing restrictions and placing expectations on them, which is something that also is, you know, expected for self-driving cars, has been for a while. There's work on regulation of self-driving cars. 
So uh, as with surveillance, it seems like another case where you want boundaries and regulations in place to make sure that we won't get into really, really bad and problematic uh, uses of AI that really aren't uh, working well. Exactly. And still on the topic of government, but on a lighter note, uh, the next article from VentureBeat is titled, Why the OECD Wants to Calculate the AI Compute Needs of National Governments. And this article touches on how the OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, wants to quantify how much compute national governments need to help with budgeting, with policy. Uh, Jack Clark, who was the former AI, OpenAI policy director and AI index co-chair, uh, will be joining the task force. And he was in a previous interview with us. Uh, and he said, quote, think of it this way. If no one measured resources like electricity or oil, it'd be difficult to build national and international policy around these things. And I think that's true. So measuring this is useful, even if it is going to be a guesstimate uh, and there's some uncertainty around that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And uh, it's interesting that Jack Clark will be on this uh, task force. As you said, he was also the co-chair of the AI index, which is one of the big efforts to quantify the state of AI. And uh, this is kind of a growing, I think, area of research uh, that I've seen of people trying to quantify at a zoomed out view what is going on with AI, you know, how many papers are being published, who is publishing the papers, what kind of research is being done. We've had several interviews along those lines. So this uh, new effort to quantify compute needs for AI um, seems to be very much in, in line of that and related. And this makes me think of um, something else we've discussed, which is the suggestion of having a national AI cloud for the United States. Uh, so uh, I think there's increasing recognition that government has a play to role in enabling researchers and R&D departments and, and you know the people of their country to make progress in AI. And uh, it's interesting to see uh, the OECD uh, sort of acknowledging that and, and working toward um, understanding that better. Absolutely. And I think this is for all governments, right, to be able to understand how much they need. And then that is how they can set certain policy and even regulation on cloud. Yeah. And here, yeah, it looks like they have a fairly you know, reasonable plan where they will begin by establishing the levels of compute in data centers or supercomputers owned and operated by government agencies. From there, they will assess the national AI clouds owned by sovereign governments. And then uh, they mean to kind of pull together all these different counts of things into a single metric. So certainly uh, this will be a fairly uh, not a new initiative, and it, I don't think there exists any sort of calculation of national AI compute needs. So it'll be interesting to see uh, what results we get as far as you know what the U.S. needs, what China needs, what other countries need. Right. Absolutely. 
And then uh, on to our last story, which is uh, <laughs> back to problematic AI, as we seem to get into every week. There's a new story of something that uh, was sort of pretty cringy, let's say. Uh, so this is the article, NAI saw a cropped photo of AOSC. It completed her wearing a bikini. Uh, AOC, AOC being uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, a current uh, U.S. Um, Congress member. So, um, yeah, this is uh, looking at a recent uh, model. Um, um, so this is uh, looking into how a recent model by uh, OpenAI, OpenIGBT, which is a version of GPT that completes images instead of words. Um, they showed that uh, when you feed in a cropped photo of a man just to, at a face level, then uh, most of the time, well, 33% of the time, it will autocomplete him wearing a suit. Whereas if you do it for a woman, uh, even a uh, famous woman like U.S. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, in many cases, so 53% of the time, it will autocomplete her wearing a low-cut top or bikini, which is um, unfortunate, obviously, that there is this bias in the training data of these models. And um, sort of it emerges naturally when you train models uh, from data scraped on the internet that sort of the societal biases we have, uh, certainly, I guess, in advertising, there must be a lot of images like this. So they are preserved. And um, yeah, it's, it's, we see this over and over again in language models, and in this case, in a vision model. So not necessarily surprising, but just another example to add on to the pile of uh, ex experiments and results that show that you really need to be careful of your, of your data and careful of your models and at least be aware of the biases they contain, if not prevent those biases directly, which in this case wasn't done. Um, yeah, I think maybe not too surprising, but uh, what's your reaction to this, Sharon? It's not surprising, but it is concerning since these are these are state-of-the-art models uh, that are being used for this uh, and would be the ones expected to be used by these large companies and are being developed right by these large companies and that might be used by others. And so I think that is uh, that is pretty concerning. And I don't know, I, I get the sense that people are doing this uh, mainly to create this headline, but it is very concerning uh, in terms of in terms of what these models are capable of, especially if we don't put any guardrails on them or we think about things as we as we train them much more. Yeah, I guess the one silver lining here is that this came out of research. Um, so there, there has been research. And uh, in this case, this was a result by uh, two researchers, uh, Ryan Steed and Ellen Kaliskan. So these sorts of biases and these sorts of problematic um, results are being actively checked for by the academic community. And what these researchers say is um, that you know these results, once again, 
mean that it would be ideal for companies to be more transparent and to publish their models so that they can be checked for biases like that was done here. And they also encourage fellow researchers to do more testing before releasing or deploying vision models, uh, like using what we had done here and really quantifying the problems with the models. So yeah, one of the positives here is at least some people are checking for these sorts of problems and calling it out. Right, absolutely. And with that, thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Skynet Today's Let's Talk AI podcast. You can find the articles we discussed here today and subscribe to our weekly newsletter with similar ones at skynettoday.com. Subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and don't forget to leave us a rating and a review if you like the show. Be sure to tune in next week.